We're really glad you're here, and I'm glad to be a part of the start of this study as we begin our series that we're calling Behold Your God. And during this series, we are going to study the attributes of God. We're going to look closely at his character and think about who he is. Uh, before, I, uh, before we kind of get into the word this morning, I just want to make mention, you have your, uh, one, of the, one of the many handouts in your bulletin today is, uh, says small groups on the front, and it has a list of the different small groups that are going to be going on this fall. And we've been talking about small groups for a little while. Today's your opportunity to sign up and, and jump into one of these groups. There, there's tables out in the fellowship hall, and you can look around and find one near you. Um, most of the most of the groups are going to be studying this series along with us. We're, we're, uh, we're going to go... Uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll, have, we'll have our message each week, and then when you get together with your group, there's no supplemental reading materials that you have to do. There's no, nothing that you have to have. Uh, there's there's uh, the A.W. Tozer books if you're interested in having something to go along with it, but you don't have to have that to be a part of the study. We're not going to follow that page by page or anything like that. That's just some, some extra reading you can do. But if, um, if you want to be a part of the group, just, just sign up. Um, sign up on one of them, and then when you get together, if it's a group that's, that's going to be studying Behold Your God along with us, uh, there's going to be some discussion questions that Wendy's come up with, and we'll just kind of, your leader will help lead you in that time to really dig a little bit deeper uh, based upon the particular attribute of God that we studied in church that week. And so if there's uh, one of these other groups in here that um, really um, uh, connects with you, uh, feel free to jump in uh, with one of these other topics. So there's a, there's a lot of opportunities. We'd love for you to get connected that way. <clears throat> the goal, my desire for this study as we gather together to study the attributes of God over the next nine or ten weeks is for us to, and here's the purpose statement I wrote down, for us to gaze at the greatness and the character of our God so that we might come to know him in such a deep in an affectionate way that we can do nothing else but burst forth into worship. That's the, that's the goal that God has for all of us. If you're looking for purpose and meaning in life, you can really summarize it in one word. It's worship. God desires worshipers. And in this study, it's my hope that we all get to know God more intimately and that worship just becomes a natural overflow. Long ago, there was a man named Moses. He was out tending his father-in-law's flocks in the deserty area of Midian, just east of the Sinai Peninsula, and dry, dusty day like they all were. And I, I'm sure that uh, he was always looking for things to break up the monotony of, of tending his sheep out there. And as he was walking along, he noticed a bush that seemed to be on fire, burning, but it seemed different than a, a fire that he might normally see because out there, everything's so dry that just it's consumed instantly. And as he got closer, he noticed this bush was on fire, but it wasn't burning up. He had to see this. So he gets a little closer to check things out and he hears this voice, Moses. Moses, remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And Moses had an encounter with God that day and he was never the same again. There's a man named Job that many of you have heard of. and One day God gave Satan permission to unleash hell on Job and Job lost his family, 
Job lost his possessions. Job lost his health. He, he lost everything. He had friends that came and said, Job, certainly you've done something wrong to deserve God's wrath. Job said, I haven't. I don't know what's going on. And as, as the book of Job progresses, though, which he was right, he wasn't being punished for something, but as the book progresses, Job's pride begins to rise up and he digs his heels in and he says, no, I, I'm right here. I didn't deserve all these things. And he begins to get a little bit, a little bit mouthy before God and after Job going back and forth and another guy stepping in to kind of correct Job and his friends, God weighs in. And God enters the discussion with these words. Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? And God uses the next few chapters to put Job in his place as God questions Job, literally just undresses him because he, he just left Job with no answer. And he says, where, how, do, you know, do you know where, the, where, the, where the, the rains are stored? Do you know where, where I keep the, the snow during the off months? Do, do you know how the animals know how to go about life? Are you the one that instructs them? And Job, at the end of God's monologue, simply says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I... I uttered what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And Job was never the same again. A man named Jacob, by his very name, was a deceitful, manipulative, slimy fella always looking for what he could get out of a situation, always trying to bleed people dry, always scheming behind the scenes. Until one day, in a very strange and unique encounter, he wrestled with the angel of the Lord. It says he wrestled with him all night. And eventually the angel touched his hip and Job just crumpled, I mean, Jacob just crumpled. And at the end of the encounter, he set up a monument with these words. He said, I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. And Jacob had an encounter with God that day that left him forever changed. We have here the word of God, God's written revelation of himself to us. And today he's revealing himself to us. Many of you, probably most of us here, have encountered God and in, in that we've trusted Christ as our Savior and we have a, a relationship with God. But for many of us, that awe has dwindled away. For whatever reason, it's been replaced by other bigger, shinier things, things that sparkle, things that look and appeal to our other senses. And sometimes God's luster is a little bit dull I'm, I'm amazed. It, it, one of the great things about having kids is seeing things through fresh eyes. They, they're amazed and enamored by what we would say are, are small and pe petty things. Owen right now is absolutely fascinated with the moon. He loves to see the moon. When he goes outside and he catches a glimpse of it in the sky, uh, he lets everybody know, moon, 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 until we acknowledge it that 
phrase will go on and on. And the other day I was trying to take him in the store in the morning and the moon was still out and he just, he just wanted to keep peeking around the store where he could keep his eye on the moon because he just thinks it's the greatest thing. And for us, it's just, uh, it's the moon. It's always been there. My in-laws come out from California. A lot of times they come out in the fall and they are always amazed by the colors because in, in Southern California, things just turn brown and, and that's it. And they're amazed when the, the woods and the forests are alive with flaming colors and they're in awe because they're seeing it with fresh eyes. And so often we take things for granted, things that uh, maybe once were captivating now become just plain and ordinary. And my hope is that if, if, if your walk with God and your view of God has taken that turn, this will reignite your awe, this study together. We all could use more of God, and we could all use more of, a, of putting God in the limelight and, and thinking about him and, and turning his great character over and over and over. And that's what we're going to do in this study. We're going to look at several of God's attributes. Next week, we're going to talk about God's holiness. We're going to look at God's and uh, God's goodness and his grace and his uh, unchangeableness. We're going we're gonna to think about our God, and my goal is and my hope that it, all of us are just drawn closer to him in worship in awe. I want to go over just a few preliminary things today um, about our study. Uh, first of all, and if you have your notes and you want to fill in these blanks, you're more than welcome to. I just want to give you a couple of assumptions that I have going into this, this study. Uh, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm un- working with the assumption that God exists, all right? There's a lot of great materials out there to defend the Christian faith and to, to prove, a, a, maybe from a scientific standpoint or from a philosophical standpoint, that, that God exists. Uh, the Bible starts off in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. The Bible starts off with the assumption that there is a God and that he's communicated to us. And so I'm working from that assumption. I'm working from the the fact that this is God's revelation to us, that the Bible speaks truth about God to us. So this won't be a study where we're going to go into the explanation and the defense of, of God uh, through various outside sources. So I'm working with that assumption. Uh, second of all, I'm assuming that God is knowable. Uh, scripture tells us that God has revealed himself to us. Psalm 19, 1 through 4, tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has revealed himself. And not only through creation, but through his word. Hebrews 1.1 tells us that uh, long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so I believe that that God tells us that he's a God that can be known. And I believe the place, the the go-to resource for that is his word. Also, I want us to uh, realize that a couple of things that this study is not. First of all, this, um, this study is not an attempt to figure God out. This study is not an attempt to figure God out. We're not here to try to learn everything that there is about God. We're not here trying to put God in a box. I don't know if you're like me, but there are times when I think that if I say a certain thing in my prayers or if I go through a few certain steps, then, then God is obligated to provide a certain 
desired outcome for me. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but you're like, well, God, last week I, I volunteered and I, I packed boxes for feed my starving children, so this week should be a good week for me, right? There's no bumps in the road, right, God? I gave a little extra tithe last week. I gave a little extra in the offering plate last week, God, so uh, I'd like to see you do this for me. And sometimes we try to anticipate God's move, like we're playing chess with him and we're trying to anticipate what's next. And the Bible says God's not like that at all. And as we try to look and understand what the Bible reveals to us about God, uh, we need to remember that this is not an attempt to try to figure God out, nor is it an attempt to learn it all. That's what heaven's for. We're, we're going to have all of eternity to, to come to a fuller understanding of who God is. And there is no way, even if we, we took all the time in the world to try to understand everything we could about God, we still wouldn't have him completely uh, figured out. Um, this is not an attempt to learn it all. There's, there's so much to grasp about God, but we're going to go to his word and learn what he has to say and what he's revealed about himself. And this is also not an attempt to create Bible trivia champions. Um, some of you guys love the game Trivial Pursuit. Uh, I'm awful at it. I can't remember facts and figures for my life. But um, this is not this study is not going to, our goal is not to equip you to be able to walk into Sunday school class and, and impress somebody with a big theological term or to try to talk circles around people. We just, we just want to know God more through this study. And so it's not an attempt to, the Bible says knowledge puffs up. Knowledge for knowledge is, is meaningless. Our goal in studying God's word here is to create knowledge that transforms our life. There's, um, I want to look at, though, for a few minutes here, and we'll kind of, this, will, this will take up the rest of our time this morning. What, is, what does it mean to know God? What are some characteristics of people who know their God? As we can talk about knowing some information. We might even talk about maybe you, maybe you met a famous athlete or a movie star one time, and you could say, yeah, I know them. But is that really accurate? Would, would, you, would you say you really, really know them, that you have a deep, abiding relationship with them, an ongoing relationship with them? Some of the characteristics of people who know their God. People who know their God also know about their God. They know about their God. Now, I just got done saying that we're not out to create Bible trivia champions, but the fact is, is that there are facts to learn in Scripture about God. There are empirical truths. There are things that can be studied in God's Word that can draw us to Him. You cannot divorce rational propositions from God about God from a personal relationship with him. We need to be people of the book. We need to be people who dig into scripture and study and find out these things for ourselves. Um, a couple of, uh, not a couple, a number of years ago when my wife and I were in training to do missions work, we were in, living in Pennsylvania at the time in a small town um, and uh, we'd been attending a church that was about almost 40 minutes away from us. And it was kind of a hike to get to every morning, but we really enjoyed the place. Um, but my wife was pregnant with our oldest son. And that particular Sunday morning, she was having uh, just nasty morning sickness and was just having trouble getting around. And she said, can we go to a church, you know, right here nearby so we don't have to spend so much time on the road today? I just don't think I'm up for driving for a long car ride today. And so I said, I, I remember seeing a church around the corner. Let's just go visit there. And so we walked in. We were a couple minutes late, and I got in. And immediately, all right, immediately I knew I was going to have trouble listening to the pastor. Okay, this was just bad. I was distracted. But um, have, have you ever seen Seinfeld? 
You know Newman from Seinfeld? The pastor was Newman from Seinfeld. He looked just like, I just wanted to walk up to him and say, hello, Newman. I don't even remember his, his real name, but, um, but I do remember his message because it was probably one of the, most, the worst sermons I've ever heard in my life. It made me so angry. The, the whole, he didn't use scripture at all. The whole premise of his, his message was, we don't, need, we, don't, we don't need scripture to be able to have a relationship with God. We just need feelings and emotions. And his, his, his whole sermon was built around an illustration, uh, apparently, and I haven't checked these facts, but I'm just, uh, according to him, uh, recently, uh, around that, that time when the, um, the Canadian uh, women's Olympic hockey team uh, had, had won the gold, and, and, the, and they were attributing their success because they had hired a coach who didn't know anything about hockey. This coach was a, a motivational speaker. And apparently, even without knowledge of the game, she was able to rally the players and to get them so passionate about hockey and so emotional that they were able to put together and win this, win this gold medal. And so his point was, we don't need scripture, we just need emotions to relate to God. And, and I, was, I was so angry. I, didn't, I don't often do this, but I went home and I wrote like a five-page letter to him with scriptures all over the place. And I was just so fired up because we need God's word. We, we need truth to, to give us a foundation from which to know God, a foundation from which those emotions and that worship can spring from. But we need God's word. And so people who know God, who have a relationship with God, know about God. Secondly, people who know God spend time with God. I don't know. Maybe that seems like a no-brainer. Maybe that seems just like common sense. But people who know God, who have a strong relationship with God, spend time with God. We all know that in our human relationships, especially your relationship with your spouse, if you log in just three to five minutes a day, you're not going to have a real deep relationship with your spouse. The same is true in, in our walk with God. The Psalms tell us, David uses different words uh, to express this desire to just meditate and, 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 and draw into a close relationship with God. He says in Psalm 27, 4, he says, One thing I've asked of the Lord, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. He says later, Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love, and on the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. David knew that just a, a short little quick email devotional or a, a, a quick verse as he was walking out the door wasn't, wasn't going to cut it. If he was going to know his God, he was going to have to take time to meditate on his God and, and to reflect on his works and on his word. I, I read a great definition of, the, of, the, of biblical meditation. I don't want us to think it's like, mm, this, this kind of thing. But it's, um, it's more of, uh, one writer said, it's the activity of, listen to this, of calling to mind and thinking over and then dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works, ways, and purposes and promises of God. It's an activity of holy thoughts consciously performed in the presence of God, under the eye of God, by the help of God, as a means of communion with God. <laughs> that is a loaded definition. But taking time to call to mind, to turn over, to reflect, to dwell on the things that you know about God's word, about his works and about his ways and about his character. That's meditating on God. Meditating on who he is. 
People who know God know that as they do that, God deeply impacts your life. Um, I was thinking about um, one thing that I, I am always baffled about. I, I, I don't quite understand it. I'm not, I'm not a real artistic person. I'm not too, uh, too into art. But I, I'm always amazed by people who really are, who will go to art galleries and just sit for hours to look at one painting in fact, I was reading about uh, one, from one art writer. He spoke with a woman who would go to the Art Institute, I think in Chicago, to look at one of Rembrandt's paintings. It was a picture of a young woman who's leaning over the bottom half of a Dutch, Dutch door. He found out this lady went in during her lunch hour three to four times a week. So he asked her how long she'd been doing that. She said, I don't know, decades. So he did the math. He said, to be conservative, let's say she meant two decades. Let's say her lunch was one hour. That's 3,000 hours of looking at one painting. If looking had been her nine-to-five job, that's over a year of doing nothing but sitting in front of one painting. He said, what amazing conversation she must have had with a woman in that painting. And of course, he went on to just, he was very positive about that and, and praising her for her willingness to just get involved with that, that artist to that degree. But I think, what if some of us were that passionate about gazing upon God? What if some of us were that passionate about meditating upon our God? What a difference it would make in our life. We all know that we should spend time reflecting on God, but many of us still choose not to. We have lots of reasons. For most of us, probably our number one reason is that we're, we're too busy. We have a lot going on. David wrote, he said, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will still meditate on your statutes. <laughs> David knew that meditating upon God, spending time with God, was so important that even when people were plotting to overthrow his kingdom, even when people were trying to kill him and run him out, he still needed to dedicate that time for intimacy and closeness with God. Otherwise, he had nothing else. had nowhere to go. Thirdly, people who know their God have a growing passion to be like him have a growing passion to be like him. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory. Paul knew that as he spent more time looking at Christ, he was going to be less like the world and more like Jesus himself. It's the same principle that we parents use as we think about who our kids are hanging around, right? Scripture says bad company corrupts good behavior. And as we think about who our kids are around, we know we've we got to be concerned about their friends, that there are people who will drag them down and be a, be a poor influence. And there are those who will be a positive influence. And of course, we want those who are going to help them do the right things and make the right choices. And Scripture says the same is true. The more time we spend around God, the more influence, the more we become like him. I pick on my wife from time to time. Actually, I probably I pick on my wife a lot, more than I probably should. And um, one, of the, one of the traits that she never knew that she had, but I, I, I asked her about one time, is I, I, I noticed that when she was around people who had accents, whether it was Spanish accent, German accent, we had some Chinese friends, uh, or uh, if she's uh, talking to somebody from the South, um, she would, if she's having a conversation with them, she'll start to begin to talk like them. And she doesn't even realize she's doing it. And um, 
and I, I, I can always tell when she's talking with her friend from Canada on the phone, I'll walk in the room and all I have to hear is just a couple of lines because I'll hear an a boot or a A out of her and I'm like, you're talking to Sharon, aren't you? And, and she just, without, without realizing it, she starts to just pick up on their speech and their vocal patterns. And uh, that's, that's kind of how it is with people who know God. They spend time around them. They, they, they're in his word. They're meditating on him. And all of a sudden, they start picking up the kinds of things, the kind of virtues that Scripture commands us to have because they're, they're around him so much. People who know their God have a growing passion to be like him. People who know their God also have great boldness for God. People who know their God have great boldness. Some of you may remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They were commanded to bow down before the idol, and uh, they were threatened that if they didn't, what would happen? They were going to be tossed into the fiery furnace. They were going to meet an early death. They were threatened. And, and uh, I love their reply. Their reply is, I mean, it's one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. They said this, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. (laughs) Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were men who knew their God, and they had great confidence in their God, and that allowed them to be bold in the face of intense pressure and intimidation. I mean, out of hundreds or maybe thousands of people there, they were the only three willing to take a stand. And the reason they could be bold is not because they were incredibly gifted or especially powerful people, but they knew the God they worshipped. And in their mind, they knew if God allows us to die today, we get to see him. And if we live through this thing, (laughs) they knew their God. And that confidence that they had in the, the character and the faithfulness of their God gave them the courage to be bold. And sometimes God asks you and I to do really tough things. I mean, share some of the people that God puts in our paths to share the gospel with, an antagonistic family member, uh, a cynical co-worker, some of the, the, the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that, that God calls us to overcome. I mean, these are tough, tough orders. These are difficult things. And they require, oftentimes, a boldness that only comes from Him. And it comes from knowing Him inside and out and having a deep relationship with Him. John Knox, the, the great Scottish reformer, um, was uh, one day approaching the court of the infamous Bloody Mary. He was the chaplain to Her Majesty, and one day he was warned to postpone the visit since she was in one of her angriest moods and might be dangerous. Knox continued on his way, replying, Why should I be afraid of a queen when I have just spent four hours on my knees before God? That's the kind of boldness that comes from knowing our God. People that know God also have great contentment. People who know God have great contentment. David wrote in Psalm 63, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed 
and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Sometimes we sing a song here called, You Are My All in All, and it's a song to God telling him that he is everything that we need. He is our all in all. But I wonder if we believe those words. I wonder if, like Job, if we had everything stripped away, had our health taken from us, our our home, relationships, friends, if we had it all taken away, could we still sing that song? Would we still be satisfied with God and God alone? People have... People who know God have great contentment. And lastly, people who know God grow humble. People who know God grow humble. You don't spend time with God and walk away thinking about how amazing you are and how lucky God is that you're on his team. When you're in the presence of God, knees and face are appropriate positions. We're going to talk about Isaiah chapter 6 next week and as we talk about the holiness of God. And Isaiah just was undone. And he says, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That was his response in the presence of God. He wasn't like, hey God, it's good to see you again. I got a, got a few things I, I needed to let you, get you up to speed on, let you know what I think, I think you could do a little bit better job here. He was just undone. Being in the presence of God Spending time with God, getting to know God, humbles you more and more and more. The great missionary pioneer William Carey, in his last days, as he lay dying in his bed, he turned to a friend and said, when I am gone, don't talk about William Carey. Talk about William Carey's Savior. I desire that Christ alone might be magnified. That's the response of people of someone who knows their God. And so as we embark on this journey together to behold our God, these are some of my hopes. But ultimately, I I hope that your awe of God is increased and strengthened as, as we get a chance to behold him, to gaze upon his glory, his character, his attributes, It's my prayer that our lives are changed and transformed more and more into the image of Christ. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Let's pray. God, there is so much that fills our time and our, our knowledge so much that can crowd you out. And there are so many things calling for our awe, whether it's a new boat, a new car, a a new cell phone, a, a new experience. God, may we remember that those things are just but fleeting and and passing. May we be enamored once again with you if we've lost our awe. 
May we remember that we get to have a relationship with the creator of the universe, that when we wake up in the morning and have a chance to talk to you, that we're talking to the very God who breathes out stars and the very God who formed our inmost parts and our mother's wombs. And this great God, you, O Lord, want to have a relationship with us. When I think about good news, I, I can't think of better news than that. God, may this time together, as we study during Sunday morning, so we have the chance to unpack this further during small groups and reflect on it in our own quiet time throughout the week. May we realize once again just how great our God truly is. May we be filled with worship and wonder. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless. You're dismissed.